Okay. So if you are looking for the session on the community health model village, then you're in the right place. If the topic that you're looking for is something different, then you probably want to find the right place. So before we get started, let's look to the Lord in prayer for this. It's not about empirical things. It's about uh, his kingdom and the extension of his kingdom. Let's just bow our heads and commit this time into God's hands. Father God, we just thank you for your presence here. We ask that you will take control of our hearts and our minds, that you will prepare us to understand what you want us to know. And Lord, if I speak anything that's outside of your plan and your intention, I pray that you'll wipe it from our memory, but burn into our hearts and our minds the things that you want us to know. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm Ravi Jayakaran and I work for MAP International. I'm based in Atlanta and I will give you my email address. I, I kind of forgot to bring enough cards, but I'll have a couple of them over here. So later on, in case you want to connect, you could uh, pick up my cards. I have a colleague of mine, Dr. Sam Surio, is here, so you could connect with him. And we have a booth, which is 15... 1502, and Ruth McLeod is there, and you could get some more information from that. I have a couple of uh, documents here on the Total Health Village, and I'd encourage you to take one each later on. And in case you don't get a copy, then stop by the booth and collect a copy. Uh, our website is there, www.map.org, and for some resources on stuff that I've written, you can go on my website, ravijayakran.com, and send me a message, and I'll send you a password where you can download stuff. Some of that is downloadable directly, but some will need a password, so I'll send that to you. So let's get into this topic, community health. What's it about? And to begin, I want you to imagine with me that you are a young woman, uh, maybe 20, 21, you just got married, and you're fixing your home, okay? The men, it's going to be a bit of a stretch, but try to imagine you are a 21-year-old woman, you're settling home, building up this house, your grandma gave you your grandpa's clock, and her old cupboard, the one, and a carpet and the chair that she loved because when you were a small kid, you went there and you sat on it. And you've, you've got a plan for this house of yours. It's just a one-bedroom house. It's actually a loft. So it's got everything in that same room. But, but you love it. This is your home. And there were a couple of patches. You covered them up with photographs of your grandma. <laughs> and you, you really love this, and you've got a plan for this place. And then uh, you put your favorite color, which is gray. That's my favorite color, gray. <laughs> so you've painted it with your favorite color. The carpet didn't exactly fit properly. It was still bent over. But you like it because grandma gave it to you. And you're just looking at this, and you're pretty happy. And suddenly, there's a knock on the door. 
and uh, you open the door and this man from outside just walks into your house. And he doesn't even introduce himself. He doesn't even ask you who you are, what you're doing, what your name is, nothing about you. And he looks at the wall and he says, a gray wall? That's crazy. Why don't you make it brown? And this carpet, is this a carpet? You call this a carpet? Throw it out. You should get a proper modern carpet from Ikea or someplace. And, and, that, and that place, Rooms to Go, has a special sale. Why don't you buy that, a chair, that, uh, that sofa there? And a, and, a, and a table like that and a, you know, a shelf like that, that's useless. Why don't you just throw it out and get something from Ikea and make it yourself? And you're doing all this and you're standing there looking to, at this man who's walked in, barged into your house and you're thinking, excuse me, who do you think you are? You're just thinking in your mind because you're, you're just 21 years old and you're newly married and you have a good nature. And then afterwards you say, excuse me, uh, who are you? And he says, I'm an NGO. I'm the NGO that works in this place. We are a Christian NGO and we want to improve the insides of houses. And then before you want to ask some more questions, that person's left and gone. Does that remind you of some people? We do that so often when we go into the village. We walk in, we forget that they have a plan. They have a strategy. They have things that they had planned to do in their village, but we walked in and we started instructing them. We didn't do them the honor of telling them who we are or finding out who they are or what their plans were. We go and superimpose our own plans because our plans, after all, are superior. They're fully funded. They have a backing of, you know, all these strategies and nicely documented in a manual with tags and stuff like that. That happens. Now, in the same way, every village has its own plan. But they don't have it documented. There's no archive in the village where you can go and find out what their development plan is. It's in the mind. Everyone knows what they want to do. That is called a survival strategy. And the model of development for the total health village, which is what I'm going to be talking to you about, is to find out what the community's plan was. Okay? How are you guys doing with my accent? Okay, this is the only one I have, so <laughs> that's the disclaimer. So, so what's a survival strategy? A survival strategy is a community's development plan. Okay? If at the end of today's session you remember just this, that's enough. And development is about engaging with the community's development plan and helping it on. Okay? The, the community's development plan is also called a survival strategy. All of us have survival strategies. Things that we do to survive is called a survival strategy. The community has a survival strategy that has two components. The first component is the empirical component. 
I don't remember whether it is E-M-P-E-I or I-R, so empirical. So the empirical component is the physical component. And it consists of, first, a stock of resources. So a community needs a stock of resources that's land, water, livestock, not Holstein Friesians like there, but livestock. My intern did that for me, and she said, I like Holstein Friesians, so I'm going to put it there. And, and the forest and then the fields and so on. So these are natural resources that a community requires. Without natural resources or productive resources, it's difficult to have a survival strategy. So they, they find a place. They have those resources. Then they need skills. Just having resources is not enough. You need skills to manage those resources and to work on those resources and produce something out of it generate an income or a produce from that natural resource. So you add skills. So first, when they get started, they use the skills that they already had. And then they import skills. It's like outsourcing inwards. So you go to the neighboring village, somebody who knows how to work on plowshares because you need plowshares, and then you ask them to come to the village. This is a whole negotiation process. You give them a house, some land, and then they come and live in your village. So you don't have to keep looking for them. And so that's how a community adds skills to its natural resources to produce something and survive. And what they plan to do is determined by the stakeholders. The stakeholders are the people from that community who are part of the village. And they, they have this plan. So together, these three S's combine and form the survival strategy. And things go on for some time. And when things don't happen the way they want it to, when there's a gap, they add a fourth S, the supernatural. Okay? So you have the empirical, and then you add on, or they add on, the supernatural. Now, remember, this, the supernatural is not the spiritual. Supernatural can be anything that works. Anything that works. It doesn't, they don't worry whether it's demonic or not. If it works, it's God. So God becomes a utility for them. As long as it works, take it. So the fourth S has been added, and all of this combines together in a very holistic form and becomes the survival strategy of the community. As time passes, that community survival strategy becomes more and more shaky as the bigger the gaps between what they have and what they need, they keep adding more supernatural. And if you're not careful and go and talk to them about Christ, they will add Christ also to all of their other gods. Whereas what does he want to be? There is none other, none greater. I shall be your all in all. That's what he wants. And if you're not careful, we might end up providing Christ as another deity to solve their problems, another utility to take care of their needs. Now, there are various things about the survival strategy. I'll just list them for you. I won't go into that because I don't have too much time. 
the survival strategy is something that must be physically possible, socially acceptable, environmentally sustainable, economically viable, technically feasible, politically palatable. It must meet those needs. When it stops being that, the survival strategy becomes shaky. And that's when you start seeing people leaving the community. The community seems to be falling apart. You have people migrating out of the community and taking desperate steps. And that's when we notice that this is a community that we need to get in and work with. Now, how do we find out what is the community's survival strategy? Uh, it's a tool called the Holistic Worldview Analysis. I won't go too much into details on that, uh, but you can, you can get some stuff to read on that. Okay, we might have to put off this light somewhere here. Where's, thank you. So I'm going to tell you the parable of the total health village. This one also, please. Okay. The parable of the total health village is about this village, and I apologize for those of you who've heard this story before, but um, here it is. Uh, there's a village on top of a hill, and people spent... You know, in turn, people over the day would come and stand at the edge of the hill and look down at the valley be below because there was this group of people that lived in the valley below who looked very happy. And these guys spent a lot of time just looking at them every day. And then they'd come back and say, okay, now it's my turn and so on. And uh, you, you can see that. That's a close-up shot of the village. And you can see a close-up shot of the guys who are standing at the corner at the edge and looking down at these people who they really envied, we wish we would be there one day, like those guys there in those buildings. They go up on top and then they disappear. They come out from the bottom. Must be something good about it. It looks they look very active and so on. And uh, they spent a good amount of time every day doing that. Now one of the risks of standing on the edge is you may fall over, and when you fall off the edge. All people hear you is when you're screaming and falling down, they hear you shout out, and the next thing you hit the ground, clunk, and you see a lot of stars. But the people over here were philanthropists, so they would look and see, wow, someone in need. They would shout out, and immediately there were two volunteers to go and get them. And in due course of time, they realized it was pretty messy, you know. If you were to carry a guy who fell down from the top, and, and carry them, then your clothes need changing because a lot of blood and muck on it. And so they introduced some appropriate technology, uh, you know, with wheels and so on. Uh, and uh, they even used a pillow to reduce the pain. Uh, and then, you know, they worked pretty hard. This guy didn't even have time to shave. There were so many people falling. And then uh, they went on like that, and uh, uh, they became pretty efficient. So someone donated an ambulance to them, and then they used the ambulance, and it increased the work. And, of course, they got some more funding from USAID, and, and so that helped them to do some, you know, provide oversight, um, supervision. You can, it's a black-and-white picture, so you probably can't see that. It's a red cross there. And, and then uh, the whole system became pretty good and effective, they even had on, on-board evaluation systems. Uh, so that's the evaluator. Evaluators always wear a cap in case you haven't noticed that. 
And that's raw data being collected from these guys who couldn't shave. And, you know, raw data connect, collected, processed, oversight provided, lots of employment here. And then donors got interested, and then even more donors got interested, and even more donors got interested. And soon they had a very prosperous system. A uh, lot of employment, economic activity, new buildings, and what was done initially by just one person now had a whole supply chain of people pass on to this person, and then then that, that and then they'd go on, uh, and uh, then they introduce uh, total quality management and CQI, uh, continuous quality improvement, and things became really well, and they even had a commemorative stamp. Uh, for this really good health, uh, health program that they had. And then suddenly, from among the same people, one guy looked up and he said, why don't we just build a fence at the edge of the cliff? And you would have expected everyone to be excited and say, yeah, that's a good idea. Instead, they threw him out of the village. And they said, you know, we would have given you the job of chief evaluator. But since you said something so bad, we have decided to throw you out of the village. There are a couple of chairs up in front, if you can move up here. And they threw him out of the village. And this guy uh, then decided to get a couple of ladders, tie them together. And he climbed up and he sat down with the villagers and he, you know, that I took that from his personal diary, and he said, leadership is a lonely walk. So you, you don't know where you came from. You don't know where you're going. You see that symbolically in that paper? Anyway, he went up there to the top, and he sat down with the people, and he mobilized them, and he got them to build a fence. Now, they didn't fully trust him, so they made the fence out of bamboo. It wasn't a very strong fence, but it immediately reduced the number of people who were falling. And then in due course of time, they discovered that there were people who were climbing up on top of that fence too and falling over. So he called another meeting, and they had this really long discussion. Why do you guys still need to go to the edge over there? And they said, because it looks better on the other side. The grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And uh, so that's why we go there, and we, we don't appreciate what we have. And he said, no, you've got assets, and you can develop them, and that will make a big difference. And so they started working, and they did two things. First is on this side, you can see all the they, – they increased the assets. They planted more trees of the same kind they had. They looked at what systems they had, and they developed it. They even set up a small little clinic. Again, this is a black-and-white photograph, so you can't see that's a red cross there. And, and, and this time, when he talked about a fence, they understood. So they built a really big fence. And once this fence was built, nobody was going here. Okay? Now, that's where the, the parable stops. And you get these figures. 50% of what you do is holistic well-being, livelihood security, food security, agriculture development, animal husbandry development. 40% of what you do is the whole prevention, public health part of it. And 10% of what you do is treatment. 
for which there's a whole system below the hill to take care of. Now, what's going to happen to all of these people when all of these things reduce? That's your guess. But this is what a total health village is. And we, we launched off into this because we were treating, as an organization that was engaged in giving medicines for almost 60 years now, in 2014, we complete 60 years. So we've been sending medicines out globally, 250 to $300 million worth of medicines every year to 119 countries, plus more than 119 countries. And what we discovered was it's not just about treatment, but it's also about prevention. So we continued to expand that. But then mothers would come and say, you treated my son, and you told me what I should do for my other two kids and my daughter. So all my four children are now well. Tell me how to keep them alive. And then we would say, sorry, we don't know what to do. Go to somebody else because we don't know anything about agriculture and livelihood security. And that's how we got involved in this. So that's what the Total Health Village is. And I want to walk you through some of these principles uh, quickly. It's about self-empowerment of communities and holistic integrated development. Now, the two of this. So we can have the lights on now. And uh, thank you very much. So empirical and the, not the supernatural, but the spiritual. Okay, so holistic integrated development. We also, our intention is to make sure that communities take ongoing comprehensive action to improve their health and well-being. This is essential. There are seven critical components of a total health village, and I want to run through that quickly. And these are, the first is we work in definable communities. Now, it works best. It works in rural as well as urban, but it works best in rural areas. The urban area is a little more complicated because in the urban area, people's livelihood is secure, but their living conditions are not. So it's a different, it's, your approach is more in service provision. But here, holistic development in rural areas is pretty easy because you can uh, step in and facilitate the process. So we work in definable communities uh, that are in socioeconomic interaction with each other. We focus on self-empowerment strategies. So day one, they take control. We don't wait for the fifth year and then say, here's it. This is your baby. Manage it. No. From day one, they own it. We work in clearly defined project cycles. We work on holistic approaches that focus on the empirical and the spiritual. And I'll talk to you about that difference. And then we also focus on children because children are the future in the present. So you focus on children, you automatically become focused on the future. Number five, it's about partnerships. And one of the things we need to learn as NGOs is you don't need to do everything that needs to be done. This is one big failure. We think we are the Messiah. Too late. There already is one. And he is? Jesus. Jesus. There is no other. There is no need for any other. Christ died once and for all. And you don't need to be the new Messiah. You just need to proclaim him. 
It's about partnerships, like-minded people that we can work with. It's about measurable, relevant results. You must have results. In today's world, people want to know if the money they're investing in your organization is having results, and you need to have that. And at the end of this presentation, I'll show you something that will make you do a backflip. Okay, maybe you just stand up. All right. Uh, number seven, it must be cost-effective. Okay, and it's a direct contrast to some of the things that the, the world is talking about. Jeffrey Sachs talks about the Millennium Village. Almost half a million dollars a year into one village make a difference. Of course it will, but for some people, not for everyone. Because you're focusing more on things that are productive rather than in relationships and in the community. So this is uh, the modus operandi. There's a point of entry. We, we find our survival strategy, and the most pressing thing is something that we will focus on. We do all of the things in the needs, but we focus in specifically on something, address it, and then as we start addressing that need, people begin to ask for more things that are related. Can you also help us on this, or do you do only this? I said, no, we can do that. And then we expand the horizons of what we get engaged with to more and more things, still we're addressing all the needs in that community. The whole village is being transformed. And that's, that's what transformation is all about. Uh, there are typical entry points, like that arrow coming in, uh, could be things that community wants. They're all things that community want. could be water, sanitation. It could be uh, water, safe water, essentially. They don't see sanitation as being important, but when you show them the relation that in unsanitary situations contaminate existing water and so on, and then neglected tropical diseases in the area or any other infectious disease that bothers them like cholera and so on, and then issues of mother and child, disaster and so on. These are entry points. These are what gets us there. So we address that issue. We get, that, get into that status where they trust us, and we see a tipping point. Somewhere along in that community, working for a year, year and a half, the leadership of the community comes to us and says, excuse me, we've seen that you're good people. What you said, you did. Tell us what to do now. We're ready to go the whole hog. And it's a powerful experience to see that happen. Okay. So uh, the holistic worldview analysis uh, is like a snapshot of the community's survival strategy. And it's not uh, part of my job today to talk about the worldview analysis, but just give you an example and show you what it looks like. We, we collect three, a lot of information, but three components of the worldview analysis are the livelihood analysis, the problem analysis, and the uncertainty analysis. And when you get these documents, you'll see each of them has an example with the worldview analysis here. Okay? So that will help you to remember when you talk about this. And then uh, we do these three exercises. The information is collected. It's cross-checked. We, we call that triangulation with a larger community so that it's not the biased opinion of just a smaller group. And then we... We put that information. This is what it would look like. And here's the digital version of it. 
And those are the things that the community does. Now, the innermost circle is what the community controls. The outermost circle, out, second outer circle is what they depend on outsiders for. And the outermost circle is the area of gaps in which they put the supernatural. Okay? So there's, I could give you a three-hour lecture just looking at the worldview analysis of a community because it's a laden, a heavy information document here. Okay? So that's what uh, the, the total health village in Kilonga looked like, and I'm going to show you a little more about this later on. The same information that comes out of the worldview analysis can then be transferred onto a log frame. The logical framework is something that the USAID and OSAID and different big donor agencies use. So it's state of the art. It can connect with that, and you can put, put the connection between the worldview analysis and the log frame. So you've got all the activities, the output, the objectives or impact objectives and so on, and that can connect up. So it's, it, it conforms to all the latest uh, technology that is uh, used in different places. Now these are photographs from, from within our uh, total health villages. This is from Indonesia. What's the modus operandi? The THV seeks to address the personal and social health determinants so that individuals and communities may experience total health and well-being. The social and the personal health determinants is what we address, which is whatever the survival strategy gaps are, and we work on that. And to use simple words, the THVs enable communities to fulfill their development plans within their community. So if the second thing that you should remember by the end of my session, with, and then I would have achieved my goal, is if you realize that participation or participation, the way you guys say it, is not about communities participating in our programs, but us participating in their programs. And that's, that's what it's all about. Okay. So transformational development is progressive, permanent, God-intended change. I worked for a long time in China, so I couldn't use God in a definition, so I had to modify it. And I used progressive, permanent development for full potential, and discovered it means the same thing. For, you know, Paul says that, I labor hard till I see Christ formed in you. And it is God's intention to see that we develop to the fullness of the potential that he has given us. So that's what you engage in. I want to talk about the W3P6. So we're now looking at holistic development. The W3P6 strategy is the strategy that we use for holistic development. You won't find this very easily everywhere. Uh, you'll find it in the talk at Lausanne, but I don't want to make this available to everybody except those who are Christians. So uh, when you look for this, uh, ask me for it, and I'll send it to you. W3 is the works. We need to respond to the need in the survival strategy. We need to respond to the gaps in the survival strategy, the works. 
the works are directly related to their needs. Okay? In the areas of the gaps in their needs and what are what they have, they have put the supernatural. So you're immediately addressing and displacing some of those supernatural deities that have taken residence in their survival strategy, the Firks. When you start addressing it, they will ask, like the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? When he talked to her about living water. So when you start displacing those deities that are the supernatural in the gaps, they will ask you questions. That's when you need to use words. You and I are called to be witnesses. Suppose this was a court, I was the judge, and a witness walked in unannounced, unrequested, walked in here, took the mic and said, Your Honor, my my suggestion is that person is guilty and needs to be put away for six months. What will the judge say? Order, order. And then, if this person still keeps on giving recommendations, he'll say, so I'm out of my court. Because what does a witness do? A witness speaks when spoken to, is a person who has seen and found out something very important or experienced something very important. A witness tells what he or she has seen and heard and experienced. A witness does not give recommendations. You and I are called to be witnesses. Sometimes we are witless witnesses because we come in and we start giving recommendations before even we tell anybody what has happened in our lives. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. That's what we've been called to do. So works, they will come and ask you themselves, why are you doing this? Why are you different? How is it you, you didn't walk into my house and tell me how I should live? You sat down and asked me, why are you different? Because Christ has sent me. Christ has changed my life. Okay? Then the third is wonders. God does the wonders, not you. You do the work that you're supposed to do. You use the words as witness when you have to. And God will do wonders. He will do wonders. The P6, first is strategic prayer for the area. Four-level strategic prayer. We'll look at that. The second thing is the presence of God's people on the ground. I'll talk about this briefly. And the third is prayer for healing of the land. The fourth is plan of action implemented. The fifth is the powers of darkness confronted. Because when you start implementing the plans, and God's work is done, God's name is glorified, you will have a rebellion from the powers of darkness. That's when they need to be confronted. And then the sixth one is participating with God in the creation of a new Jerusalem. And Isaiah 65 has got that beautifully written. But let's run through each of these. Strategic prayer is four-level prayer. When you have a project, how are we doing for time? 
450? Okay. Okay. So we have four levels strategic prayer. So the, the first level is the principalities and powers. The second is political and other powers. The third is the implementers or the shamans and the, you know, the little priests for the various deities. And the final is the grassroots level interactors. Now it's the same way as in any project. If you have a project or a, a management of a program, the top level is strategy. The second is management and administration. The third level is implementation, implementers or supply chain people. And the fourth is the grassroots level. It operates in the same way. Prayer, this strategic prayer has to be prayed from outside the community. So if you're going into Haiti, have a group of people who are praying for Haiti from outside of Haiti. Strategic prayer. This is the outside prayer. And it's very important. And later on, if some of you want to, if you are called to this kind of ministry, please come to me. I'll share with you these notes and also talk to you about it. You need to have someone praying. And you need to be in contact with people who are aware of this, the need for this type of prayer. Don't walk in. And I was just talking with a sister before I came in here. Don't walk into, into a situation without that covering of prayer. Because people in the West do not know what it's like when these principalities and powers are in operation. Go to Haiti and you'll find out. Go to West Africa, you'll find out. East, South Africa, Asia, you'll find out. We're rushing. The second P is the presence of God's people on the ground. Psalm 125.3 says this beautifully. The scepter of the wicked will not prevail over the land allocated to the righteous. The very presence of God's people on the ground begins a cleansing process. It's like God as a mother moves out anything that may be dangerous to a child from the path, just moves it out. And that's what God does for his children. Because the verse goes on to say, so that the children of God will not turn their hand to evil. God does the cleansing. Just your very presence begins that. Even the place where you stay, because you are a child of God, God has begun transformation. Before you did anything, even before you witnessed, you just moved in. God has started the cleansing process. Number three, prayer for healing of the land. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? What happened to the land? It was cursed. By whom? It was God who cursed. Who can revoke the, the curse? Only God. And who has the right to ask him? His children. What a privilege. Walk into a place where you've been called to serve and walk through that place and ask the Lord to heal it. You don't need to shout and scream. You can just say it in your mind. Father God, I ask that you will heal this land. Heal this land. Just like Solomon did. God was so pleased. He came down when Solomon built his temple. He got down on his knees and he said, I give you all the glory. All of this is nothing before, whom, before who you are. And God visited him and asked him, what do you want? And the scriptures say, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will forgive their sins. I will hear their prayer, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal the land. God will heal the land. 
as you pray. That the rain will come in its season, the plants will grow, that the land will become fertile. You will see those changes. God will do it because of you. And then also, not only for removal of the curse, but for healing of the land. And I cover that. And then implement the plans. One without the other is no use. There, it is, it's about, you know, the problems are manifestations or symptoms of sin. But just dealing with the sin is not enough. You deal with the symptoms. God has called you to be his, his representative in that place, to be a facilitator of the healing and salvation, not just of the spiritual part. Because people are bodies and they have souls. They're not soulless bodies or bodiless souls. And so the response has to be twofold. It has to be holistic. You start acting on those plans and start doing what is necessary. And God will provide those connections. People who need to come will come to you. The resources that you need will come to you. And then the reaction will come. So the powers of darkness need to be confronted. Now, there's some great promises, Luke 11, 14 to 23. Uh, you, and it's a strange example because Jesus says, if you want to go and rob somebody's house, you have to bind a strong man of the house. Okay, and just to remind you, you know, when, uh, when he talked to, to Peter, he said, on this rock will I build my church. Okay, now there's a lot of discussion on which rock he was talking about. You are Petra and I am the rock and all that stuff. But we miss the main thing. What is the main thing there? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now we always look at the gates as though the gates were the offensive. No, the gates are defensive. So what he's talking about is going in there and smashing open those gates. And they will not be able to withstand the pressure. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in in the world. Okay. And then participating with God in the creation of a new Jerusalem. God will take it not only to the restoration of what it was before a crisis, but he will take it beyond to make it a new Jerusalem. That is his desire. And the, the scriptures are so beautifully, uh, you know, profound in their expression. Behold, I am creating a new thing. I'm doing a new thing. I'm creating streams in the desert and so on. But read Isaiah 65, 17 to the end. It's powerful. I don't have time to go into this, but I just want to take you through the last part on measuring what matters. So here we are looking at the worldview analysis of a community. If you go to the eastern part of Kenya in a village called Kilonga in Kailolini district, close to Mombasa, there's this village which is a total health village. And I shared about this village a long time ago. That's the worldview analysis in 2008. They have it on the wall because that worldview analysis went through a lot of crises. They, when you finish doing it, the village chief put it on his wall, and I was thinking, you know, chief, what are you going to do with this? He says, I've understood. I've understood what are the priorities of my village and what we need to do for development. 
So if anybody comes from outside, I'll bring them here. And I'll say, can you help us to do some of these things? If not, please don't confuse us. Leave our village. <laughs> and I turned to some of my staff who were there, and they were crying. Because they did not know that the community had that capacity to do it. Okay? So, unknown to me, one of them rolled the paper with the worldview analysis. Fortunately, I had taken a photograph of it. And they put it in the car, along with all of the other stuff. Because I told them, what we create in the village, you never take away. But this guy who took it didn't hear me say that. <laughs> so, I put it in the car. And in Africa, you know, they love to open the window when they're driving. So it flew out, and it was gone. By the time we reached, that one document, which was the last one we put in, was gone. And then they had to tell the message, you know, send this message to the villagers. and said, our worldview analysis is gone? <laughs> they told me that. I said, don't worry, I got photographs. So I printed it and sent it to them. This time they said, we're not leaving it on a paper, so they painted it on the wall. <laughs> so if you go to that village, they'll take you and show you on the wall. So that's what it looked like there, and this is what it looks like on a digital version. Now you see some greens and some reds there. I told you the center part is what the community does. Second outer is what they depend on outsiders. The outermost is what is outside of the control of both the community as well as outsiders. Okay? Now the, the, the colors, the numbers are to show priority, which is the highest need, and then so on. Now, you don't start only with one need. You address all needs. So those are the numbers, and it links up with the development priorities, and you'll see examples of that here. And, but if you look at the calculation, we compare the innermost circle. Let's, let's look at business. One in the innermost circle, and then compare it to the second and third together. So that's eight Nine on the outside, one on the inside. Nine is more than one, so it's a vulnerability. Vulnerability is shown as red. So on to all of those. Now, if you go to cholera, you see it's five, five, so it could be either. So we asked them, and they said, no, we know, we know now how to control it. There is no cholera right now, but when it happens, we know how to do and what to do. So we think it's a capacity. So capacity by vulnerability is, that is, number of greens by the number of reds gives you what is called the CV index, 0.11. Okay? Are you with me? Kind of. Okay. You can put that on a graph. That's your baseline. 0.11 was when we started in 2008. In 2009, almost the same condition. But if you look carefully, several of the seeds have moved inside. But it's still one green and the remaining red. CV index 0.11 on the graph, that's how it looks. And 2010, what do you see? A lot of capacities have built. Okay? So number of green by number of red, 0.67. See how that looks on the graph. I talked to you about measuring results, relevant results. Then go down to 
2011. Are there a lot more green? 1.5. Okay. Now, when it crosses one is when you begin to see empowerment in the community. They're taking control of things. And they're excited. That's the point when they come to you and say, we trust you. Tell us what to do. That's the time when they begin to ask, who's your God? How do you worship him? We need to know. Is he the one who's working with you? Because there are others who have programs. What is it about you? Then you begin to, you can even share with them the W3P6. And then they're doing it in their neighborhood. 2012. Okay? We're still struggling with two things. Drought and flood. Because we couldn't find the appropriate technical people for that. So we started making appropriate connections to find people who knew about micro-watershed development and so on. But see this. Do you see that difference? And you go into this community, they will show you how to do it themselves. They can show it. And they will start telling you, this is what we need to do. This is the change that we need to do. Okay, how much time do I have? No more? It's over? I was supposed to have... Okay, I must tell you a story before. How can I leave it without a story? I need to tell you a story of Kanani. Okay. The, the, the Kilonga village is on the eastern side of, of Kenya. And Kanani's village is somewhere here. It's a village called Burangi. And I'll show you Kanani. Kanani had a complication. He had hydrocyl, and it was uh, because of lymphatic filariasis. The inguinal canal was blocked due to the lymph nodes enlargement. Lymphatic fluid couldn't come back. It was extreme. He was, he was completely embarrassed. His wife even told him, why don't you die? At least I can marry again. This is before, uh, this is afterwards. But this is what his wife told him. And Kanani made three attempts to kill himself. He lived in Burangi, which is up on um, a sort of mountainous area with a river that flows around. There is a, a whirlpool very close to his village, and he was trying. But he couldn't walk, so he would go like this. And then people noticed, who's that walking towards? There's no road there. Why is someone walking there? And that's this place where the whirlpool is. Why is he walking there? And then before he could jump in, they would come and catch him. And he was so frustrated. He said, I can't live and I can't die. Cursed man that I am. And somewhere along the way, Kanani heard that there were, being, uh, there were operations being carried out for lymphatic filariasis, hydrocyl complications in Kilonga village. In that same village where they were moving towards empowerment, 1.5 level when they were reaching, word got around to everyone saying, hey, in that village they have this. So Kanani got onto a matatu. I don't know how, how many of you know what a matatu is. A matatu is a van that has place for 11 people but houses 22. <laughs> okay? So he tried to get into this matatu 100 kilometers away. That's 60 miles away. He comes in from here to here. I don't know if he paid for two tickets because you've got to sit like that and he can't sit like that. 
And somehow he reached, and he was waiting. And they said, uh, you wait in line. Are you, do you have a number to be operated? He said, I don't know about that. I just need to meet the doctor. Dr. Kavaludi, I just need to meet And they said, without an appointment, you can't. He said, I don't care. I will stand here, and I will wait for Dr. Kavaludi. So Kavaludi finishes his operations, comes out, and he says, yes, you obviously need an operation. Why didn't you get your name registered? He said, they said, its priority is first only for this place. And he said, please, operate on me. I'm ready to. He says, and you know, Kavaludi saw the tears in his eyes. He said, I tried to kill myself. I couldn't. My wife says, why don't you go and die? At least I can marry again. And I'm stuck. What do I do? So Dr. Kavaludi feels sorry for him. He says, okay, get into this van. I will do the operation in your village. She goes to his village. They drive 100 kilometers with all these other people who are thinking, we thought the operations are over. We can go home to Nairobi. And this, but they don't dare tell Dr. Kavaludi no. So he takes them there. And they reach this place and he says, your village is there. There's a river in between. How do I go across? He said, we walk. Why don't you also walk or we get a boat for you? They cross over. Long story short, to walk through this, there's no road. The only hedges they push aside. So Kavaludi is telling him, if I come here to work in your village, you need to make a road. So they, so anyway, they go up there. They go, there's no place to operate. So they go into a hut and they do the operation and, you know, dust comes from the roof. So they've got a uh, bed sheet over him like this. And every now and then someone who's holding it tries to see what's being done in the operation and sees the blood and collapses. <laughs> so they're like, get that guy off my back. And then finally Kavaludi sutures him up again puts him back in the van, takes him back to Kilonga, completes the operation, and he says, okay, I'm extending my stay by three days. I want to see that everything's all right. And three days later, this guy is excited. And as Kavaludi examines him and he says, everything is perfect, no complication. You're a good enough man to be called a, a fully a man. You can go back. Kanani holds Dr. Kavaludi's hand and starts crying. He says, there are hundreds of people like me in my village. You come there. He says, yes, I'll come, but I told you about the road, and we have to have a place. And this is the last part of my story. Four months later, Kavaludi is doing another camp of operating in Kilonga, Standing right there as uh, the first person to greet him is Kanani with a whole lot of elders from his village. And he is perfectly all right. He says, I am good enough to jump like a Maasai. And he could not walk, this man. And they took him to the village after he did all the operations. And they had made a 13-kilometer road. The whole village, plus the surrounding villages, made a road. They collected stones. They got donation for a place for a hospital to be made. They had collected the sand. They collected boulders. They said, we need cement and bricks and sheeting, and we'll build a hospital. From there, Dr. Kavaludi rang me up, and he said, I know we have no funds. Please don't tell me we don't have funds. Don't start something. 
I want to start a project in Kanani's village. Where is Kanani today? He is serving his community. I met him. I had the privilege of meeting him. He serves. He serves. And he asked Dr. Kavaludi, who do you believe in? He was a man who was following the African traditional religion. Kanani got him a Bible. He reads that every time. That's how witness is. That's what holistic development is. Thank you.